left off last week with that question, how is the world going to end? How close are we to the world's end? This will be part two. With an emphasis on interpreting the times, what signs should we be looking for? That was a question that was posed to Jesus when he had been with his disciples nearby the temple structure. And there's obviously an amazement that the disciples had as they overlooked the hill and saw the glories of this building and then asked the question to Jesus, when are these things going to come to an end? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world or the end of the age? When? And we're going to read in Matthew 16 right now, hopefully getting some answers to questions that are often posed about the end times and how close are we to the second coming, to the close of, uh, of history. How close are we to eternity when the world will be ended and a new dimension will begin? Matthew 16, verse 1, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came and tested him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fall weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. Interpreting the signs of the times. When things like what's happening in the Middle East right now, and we spent a bit of time talking about Israel being back in the land and about the interactions between the Middle Eastern powers and all that's taking place there. And I want to move on but with the assumption that was made last week, coming from an amillennial perspective, we mentioned last week that there are various ways in which Bible interpreters, commentators have concluded their view on the end times. You have the futurist who holds to a premillennial view that as Christ is going to return and set up a 1,000-year period of time here on earth, which will be concluded with Christ coming again, a final judgment, and then the new heavens and the new earth will be the ultimate end of etern for eternity. The post-millennial view sees a time in human history since the church has begun back at Pentecost. It's some specific time that has not yet occurred yet, but there's going to be a millennial-like period of time when there'll be peace, when there will be tranquility, when there'll be a measure of Christness in the world where the world will be somewhat Christianized, you could say, where the salt will spread its savor around the world, and there will be a compatibility between the world and Christ. It will be an era of peacefulness. That's the post-millennial view. And then Christ will come at the end of that period of time. The amillennial view sees it differently, and it has been the most popular view Throughout the history of the church, it's not these days in evangelical Christianity. At least in America, it is not. But it doesn't really matter anyway. And I would say that any 
any prophetical scheme that one may have, pre-trib, post-trib, pre-mill, post-mill, on-mill, etc., there's some, some folly in any one of those systems. You, You could punch some holes in any one of them to some degree. But I think that the amillennial view is the one with the least problems of the different schemes of the second coming and of the end of the age. So I'm coming from that standpoint. If you have a different one, that's okay with me, and it's okay with our church. We don't fuss over uh, eschatological points, whether you're pre-mill, post-mill, etc. That would be something that we can debate over. We don't have to divide over it. So keep that in mind. And I do think there's going to be enough here that even if you or those who hold other eschatological views of the end times, there's a commonality that I think we can all agree upon, and I think you will discover that as we go through some of these slides. Could we have the first slide, please? All right. What has to happen before the end of the world, the end of the age? Jesus talks about we're able to understand the, the way the sun rises. Is it, is, it, is, it, is it red at the close of the day? Well, we know tomorrow is going to... We can interpret weather conditions and predict them to some degree. Jesus is saying, but you can't even understand the time. Now, what was he referring to in Matthew 16? He's talking about his presence with them at that time. They did not see that the coming of Christ had drawn near that the Messiah's feet were upon the earth and that they, did, they were not able to detect it. Remember when Jesus later, when he's coming in to be crucified and he looks over the city and he weeps over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. If you had known this day, a day of peace, but you have not understood it. And he wept knowing what was ahead for the city of Jerusalem. They did not understand the times, and that's what Jesus meant. In Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about future events that will be happening that he is predicting at that point. So one of the things as we read through the Bible, we have, for instance, in, uh, in Romans. I've got to get my clicker over here. In Romans, but let's read that together for in, a, in a se- several portions that are out of that chapter. For, for if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their, that's the Jews specifically, what will, the, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If you were out of, cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, that's referring to the Gentiles, who were brought into the spiritual family of Abraham's, God's people, God's family, and contrary to nature, were grafted in to a cultivated olive tree. We must recognize as Gentiles, we have no uh, heritage, we have no uh, commonality with, with Israel and with the uh, lineage from Abraham in his descendancy. That's why we're classified as unnatural, but yet we've been grafted in. But how much more readily will these, that is the Jews, the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now that statement of all Israel will be saved is a statement that's referring something to something that will be happening before the close of human history. So 
if we're going to be understanding the times and signs of the end, one thing we can be watchful is about is Israel being saved. Now, there are different views on all Israel being saved. What does that mean? My perspective is taken from words by William Hendrickson, who says in every period of history, that is church history, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. These remnants taken together collectively constitute the all Israel shall be saved. That is my particular view. It doesn't have to be your view. Some and many do hold that Israel nationally is going to be uh, converted, that the whole nation is going to be converted. Very few would believe that every single Jew on earth is going to be converted, but that the nation collectively, because of the word all, will be saved. They assume that to be the case. Some believe that it's just individual Jews, a large number of Jews at the end, which I think is a very legitimate position, and it also harmonizes with this to agree, to a degree because there's a culmination of Jews converted from the first century till now. And I think that's one thing that we could acknowledge, that there has been more of a work among Jews in the last 40 years or so, Jews for Jesus in New York City, for instance, have done some amazing work. Uh, the Messianic movement, you could say, among Jews, uh, not large, large numbers, but a considerable amount of Jews have been converted, some that were very religious Jews, some that were nominal uh, Jews, and some that were even sectarian Jews. And you might know some friends who are Jewish by uh, ethnic background but have come to faith in Christ, and they may not have been a practicing Jew Nevertheless, they were Jews. And here we have this, and I just want to draw it to your attention. I could drag this out a lot longer. We could talk a lot about that. But I really just want to hit uh, some of these points as we uh, continue on. And let's see if I can get the next slide. Oh, here we go. All right. Another thing to look for, a sign of the end of the world. Let's read again. This is from 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3 and 4. That day of the Lord will not come until the apostasy occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That is something that we need to be aware of, an apostasy. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 18, 8. When the Son of Man comes, this is his second coming, will he find faith on the earth? The implication is that there's going to be a great reduction of faithfulness to Christ, believers, genuine believers, at his second coming. Next verse in Revelation. And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, synonymous names of the individual, of the being, and bound him a thousand years. So we have a reference to uh, an angel coming down with a chain in his hand, laying hold on the dragon, who bound him a thousand years. And I should have added to that that he must be loosed for a little season at the end of the thousand years, for what purpose? To deceive the nations. 
Now, having that amillennial scheme, what, how can we hold to that if it says that Satan's going to be bound? Can Satan be recognized as bound right now? Well, Jesus describes Jesus, uh, Satan as one who had, who had mastery over the house. But a greater than Satan, a greater than the one who was watching over the house has come in order for him to take the goods out of the home. Well, that's what Jesus did. He did accomplish something in his death, burial, and resurrection that affected the efficacy of the devil. And when you think of it and you compare the New Testament era to the Old Testament era, the, the, in general, paganism, polytheism was ruling. Satan had the world in his hands, if you will. He was unbounded. But now monotheism comes into the world and we find a lessening of paganism after Jesus is coming. Now there's a lot of history involved here, a lot of it's a broad, a broad brush that I'm using right there to say that Satan has been bound and he's done it in such a way that the nations have been hindered from being able to be as deceived as they were in the Old Testament period of time. So Satan, we know, is a deceiver. And by him being bound doesn't mean that he doesn't have access to the, to the church, to us, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. He's called the God of this world. We once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. So we don't want to minimize Satan's ability in a time when Revelation 20 classifies him as bound. And again, this is an amillennial perspective. The reason why I say that that verse about Satan being loosed at the end of the thousand years is because at the end of the age, prior to Christ's second coming, there's going to be a heightening of deception that the world will be affected by. And there's a lot of examples I think that we could give. You could just go on the internet, for instance, and Google pastors who have become atheists. There's a whole society of pastors out there, American and elsewhere, who are now grouped together. No, no, and I'm just talking about, quote, ones who were classified as evangelical pastors, who believe thus saith the Lord, who preach the cross, who witness the gospel, who ex- claim having experienced gospel transformation. And yet they believe nothing now. They don't believe there is a God. They're an atheist. That is a genuine example of apostasy. And I'm not just focusing on that particularly, but just think of the way COVID affected the church worldwide even. Do you realize how far attendance has gone down? Do you know how many people gave up going to church? It's a little indicator of how people can turn away from the Lord. When testings come, the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold. You know, when, 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 the, when the fire starts burning and the pressure comes on, quote, believers, that's the test. Are you gold or you wood, hay, and stubble? If you're the Lord's, you have the inbuilt, intrinsic 
gift from God to be able to withstand the fiery darts of the devil. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But if you're still a child of the world that has had a profession of faith in Christ and you don't have him inwardly, you don't have the possession of the Holy Spirit within you, then you're very vulnerable to the spirits that are in the world. Again, a lot of these things could be spoken of much longer than the time that I'm going to allot to it so I can get through this uh, this morning, this afternoon. The next thing, the Antichrist... Oh, keep that screen up. The Antichrist must be revealed. Now, we have him referenced up here. I, I have this verse together specifically for the apostasy and also to recognize that the day of the Lord will not come unless the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction who opposes and exalts himself all that is called God and so on. I mentioned last week that one prominent speaker in in the United States here has claimed that Hamas is the Antichrist spirit that's in the world and it's going to spread. You know, there are theories like this that are out there. And we, we are expected to look for signs, but I think myself that the signs are going to be clear, not just to one, one person or, or a group of esoteric individuals who are going to say, this is it. I think that the church, generally speaking, will have the discernment to detect who is or what is the Antichrist. I at least want to get across to you that the Antichrist must be revealed before the end of the world. Here it is in 1 John 2.18. Dear children, this is the last hour, and he's writing it about in the 90s A.D., and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, he hadn't come yet, and if that book was written in the 90s, then Nero could not have been the Antichrist as some want to try to uh, redate the, the, the writings of John. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. We know that many Antichrists, plural, have come. In other words, there's some similarities between the Antichrist individuals that were prominent even in the first century have some relationship to the Antichrist who's coming in the future. What is an Antichrist? It's someone who's apostatized, someone that had some connection to the Lord. For instance, in John chapter 6, the, the individuals there with Jesus who are, who are puzzled by Jesus saying, whoever eats of my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life. It said many of his disciples, therefore, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can believe it? Verse 66 says, And from that hour, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Who walked back and didn't walk with him anymore? Those who were his disciples. They were disciples in, in name. Jesus says, You are my disciples if you continue in my word. They did not continue. How do you know you're saved? How do you know anybody is saved? By their continuation in the things of God. Not falling off, not falling away, not going back to the world, not going back to Sodom, 
but having their eye. Now, that's not to say that we don't slip and we don't fall. Our brother George in his testimony gave some indications of that. And I think if all of us were giving our testimonies, we're going to have some instances as a Christian that we have failed and maybe we slumbered for a period of time. But by the grace of God, the Spirit within us energizes us to continue. Okay. So the apostasy has to happen. The Antichrist has to show up. And here's an assortment of miscellaneous happenings that must occur. Again, we're going back to Matthew 24. I'm not going to read that. You should be familiar enough with it. There's going to be wars and rumors of war, Jesus said. There'll be famines, pestilences, and false Christ. Those who are saying they are Christ. Uh, We have seen since the middle 1800s or thereabouts a rise of up rising up of the cults, the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists and others that have really come across as restorationalist groups, the Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ as they're known also. These groups also can almost be in a sense categorized or, or categorically labeled as something like false Christ. And there definitely have been individuals uh, like, like Mooney, uh, remember the Moonies? Um, and examples after example could be given of those who have come to a status, as re- like a Christ-like status. What about uh, David Koresh, for instance? Believe him to be the Christ. Jim Jones uh, with the, uh, the temple uh, tabernacle people, etc. And then in verse 14 of Matthew 24, he says that this gospel shall be preached in all the world and then shall the end come. We have had the gospel spread through many, many countries in many, many languages. It's an amazing amount of of coverage that the gospel has gone to over the course of years and especially since maybe in the late 17, early 1800s, there was a greater movement of worldwide evangelism. I already mentioned here about Satan being loosed and the kind of deception that uh, accompanies his, his loosing. Could we conceive of Satan being loosed more recently in our day? And I'm not going to try to convince you that we are in the last of the last days, but I'm just trying to get us to think about the possibility of things that are on the horizon that we might be seeing now that could be strong indicators that we are closing in on the end of human history. The end of human history. It's starting to get bleak. It's starting to get dark. The battle of Armageddon. What's that all about? That's the final. That's the final conclusion. These are all also as well. But the battle of Armageddon seems to be the ultimate consummational battle that will take place between God and all the evil that Satan, who's loose, can muster up in many different kinds of ways. There's going to be this strong opposition. Atheism is a growing movement. The nons, those that don't go to church anymore, has been a, lo- a large contingency of that is, 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 is the case in society, not just in America, other countries as well and around the world. But this one here, that battle of Armageddon, how close is that one? God is going to be a dirty word in the eyes of some who want to, as the scripture says, uh, making evil 
good and good evil and put darkness for light and light for darkness and bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, uh, sweet for honey. So there's a reversal of what's truth by an advancement of falseness. We're supposed to be a tol- we're supposed to be tolerant. Really, what society wants us to be tolerant towards evil. That's love. That's their interpretation of love. Is to be tolerant towards evil. And we as believers, we know by the Word of God, by discernment of the Holy Spirit within us, we know the difference between right and wrong. We know what's light and dark. We know what's honey and what's, what's bitter. We cannot concede to that. So I want to finish up with this. How do we stand in the evil day? Everything that I've said thus far, there's a lot, a lot of... Uh, blank spaces in between a lot of those topics that we talked about. But I think we would all agree, as it tells us in the book of Romans, that the, that the coming of the Lord is nearer than when we first believed. So if Paul in 65 or so A.D. could say Christ's coming is sooner than when you first believed, how much more after two millennium of time would Christ's coming be nearer? One day is with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. So let's sometimes think the way God thinks chronologically rather than we do in our own Western minds about time. We are more than conquerors. When we read the book of Revelation, which is a key book obviously for end time events, it says in all of the seven churches, beginning with Ephesus and going through all of them, Smyrna and Pergamos, and Thyatira, all the seven of them, at the end of each one of them, he says to them that you are conquerors, you are overcomers, and that there's a blessing for each of the churches that contain overcomers. Not all, not all churches you necessarily that are addressed there have all believers in them. As a Baptistic church, we believe in a regenerate membership. You must be born again. You can't join because you like us. We're nice people. You can't join the church because um, you, you just think it's a good place to be or whatever. But you've got to be born again. And it's your responsibility as a church and us as elders together that we be wise in who we receive into the church of Sovereign Grace Chapel. Are they born again? And so it should be with every church. But that doesn't mean there's a guarantee that everyone we think who's born again is born again. Someone could come into the church with a profession of faith that seems genuine outwardly and all that we could detect, but inwardly they may not have a genuine relationship with a living God. And what usually proves it is give them some time. And I'm not talking about a year or two. Give them five years, 10, 15, 20, 30 or 40 years maybe. What, how are you going to end your journey in this world? Will it be said of you, Well done, my good and faithful servant. He that endures to the end shall be saved. The ones that are saved are the ones that endure. The ones that fall away are apostates, if I can be black and whitish about that. We are overcomers, and how did they overcome? John was in the Isle of Patmos, who's writing the book of Revelation from his own vantage point, which becomes sort of like the theme of the book of Revelation. He was in the Isle of Patmos for what? For the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Every believer should be classified by those two things, by 
be avid believers in the Word of God and upholding the testimony of Jesus Christ. Just holding those two things, which summarizes basically a Christian life, take up my cross and follow me, those are the two things that should be mocking us. And those two things are going to be in strong opposition against those who are children of of this world and children of the devil. We are overcomers by the word and the testimony of Jesus. This is said numerous times in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 12, the woman that bears the child and the devil tries to, to, to kill the child and he's caught up to God. And it says, and the woman, now the woman flees into the wilderness. There's a war with the dragon against the woman. The woman has to go into the wilderness and, and, and the devil is trying to, to submerge her, as it, will, as it were, the church. But she ends up surviving. That's the good news. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We don't like to think so much. We're comfortable as Americans. You know, we've, we've, the, the government has very has been accommodative in the past. They've been lenient in many ways towards us and accepting of Christianity and even evangelical Christianity. But that's not the case. Uh, the page is turning and it's almost totally turned over, and now we're, we're going to be viewed as enemies. So, what we do here, fight and flight. Revelation 12, they're fleeing into the wilderness. Now, that's not because of cowardliness. That's simply because of survival. There may be some survival modes that we need to think about in the future. And, and I don't want to sound like a, a doom and gloom guy, but when I read the book of Revelation... It's warfare that's going on here. Uh, the way that Jesus describes discipleship and following him, take up my cross daily and follow me. Let him that take, deny himself and take up his cross. There's some sacrifice involved. There's some price that has to be paid for being a Jesus follower. Revelation 12, we have martyrdom. We have beheadings in the book of Revelation. We have a forced submission via the mark of the beast. You can't buy or sell unless you have the mark of the beast. What does that mean? Is there going to be a a government imposition over the church that's going to cause us to have to submit to them in order to have some amenities that they will say you are allowed to have? There's going to be some pushback, obviously, between the believers, genuine believers, and societal leaders, etc., who really has behind them the dragon, the beast, as I said, who's let loose at the end of the millennium. Our millennialist simply means not a literal millennium, not a literal thousand years, but it's uh, a non-physical reign of Christ, which is taking place right now in heaven, above, over the church, until he comes back in his final victory when he will make us trophies of his grace and he'll reign from sea to sea and shore to shore in the new heavens and the new earth. Next, Matthew 10, 28. Fear not them which kill the body, but not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Doesn't the scripture say to love, they love not their lives unto death. How much do you value your life in this world only? Do we have treasures laid up for ourselves in heaven? Do we really believe when we die we're going to go to heaven? 
do we really are we really willing to fight the fight with maybe a cost of having to die for the cause of Christ? This is definitely a side of Christianity that is not highly advertised because this is not the health and wealth gospel, you know. It's just the opposite. You want to give your life for Christ? You want to die for Him? You want to be persecuted? You want to have, be forced to take the mark of the beast and resist it and have all kinds of penalties put on you? That's what we're talking about. They love not their lives unto death. We need to not love our lives. This is the, these are the remedies for us. This is how we have to go forward. Obviously, Ephesians 6.10, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. There's power from the Lord that enables us to be able to quench the fiery darts of the devil, to resist the devil, and he'll flee from us. Put on the whole armor of God. What a, what a ch- if you, if you want to memorize, and I'm not big on reading big portions or you know, multiple verses necessarily, but I do for verses like those. If you want to memorize a section of Scripture, there are some definitely z- precious sections of Scripture that I think are worthy of, of memorizing collectively. That would be one of them. And then his, his uh, consolation. Remember the Lamb of God is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We with him are the victors. He is the conqueror that will conquer all. And th- the end will justify the means. So if we go through trouble and we have to give our lives and we have this uncomfortability of, 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 of the past American life that we've lived, it's also the glory of God. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's a shall. It's a must. It's going to happen. If you're a child of God and a Jesus follower, there's some consequences that we're going to have to live up to. And we're going to say, I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. I'd rather walk with Christ alone and be wrong with the world rather than being right with the world and wrong with Christ. The Lamb of God is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion is the great one. He, he's the most ferocious one. There is an anger side to God, a wrathful side of God. The world hasn't seen it yet. The battle of Armageddon will see the wrath of Almighty God when he contends with all the forces of humanity when they clash together. And it's going to be an indisputable victory that's going to come at the conclusion when we can say truly, our God reigns. And all those that aren't Christ will be forever without into utter darkness. If you don't know Christ as your Savior and you're in this room, take sides with God against yourself. Put yourself in the Lord's hands. Say, Lord, take my life. Let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. What is our life? It's but a vapor anyway. It just appears for a little time and then vanishes away. May God teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. May God give us a a spirit like the men of Issachar. They understood the times and what Israel ought to do. And as we look at, I just gave you a little foretaste of things that are expected to occur before the finality of the second coming. 
and one that I want to add when, when it's talking about deception and Satan being loosed at the end of the age, some of us went, and I tried to invite others to go too, and I wouldn't inv- encourage you to go, because I think this is going to be a bigger and bigger thing as time goes on, and that is the afterlife, what happens when you die, uh, the NDEs, the near-death experiences. I have a lot to say on that. I don't know, maybe I should d- dedicate a whole sermon to that topic, because I've read many books on it. I've listened to lots of messages on that. It's been something that's been very important to me, and I think should be to all of us, because if, if when you die, according to the NDEs, we get into a, a beautiful light, it's all love, green grass, gardens. Who has to fear God? And after watching the movie, there was nothing about fearing God and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's all kinds of difficulties in the near-death experiences. And I'm not denying that there are out-of-body experiences that people can have in, in the, in the uh, operating rooms when, they're, when cardiac arrests occur and, and a person becomes, quote, classified as clinically dead, that there is a separation or could be a separation of the spirit from the body and then there's some visibility that, that shocks the medical world. How is it explainable that someone who is dead... No brain waves, no heartbeat, no oxygen, no breathing, and yet they have consciousness after they're dead. Well, the Bible teaches that. Your, your, your life doesn't end when you die. You just go on to the next dimension. We know from Luke 16 when t- two people died, one went to heaven, one went to hell. When people die, they're going to go up or they're going to go down to simplify it. Be sure you know Christ is your Savior. Yes, there is a part of us that can survive the body and will. Paul talked about whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. Such a one that was caught up into heaven. What did he see? We have these books, 23 minutes in heaven, 90 minutes in heaven, and on and on. What did they see? Paul, a genuine account of going to heaven, said, I heard things that were too sacred to be uttered unexplainable. Oh, there's so much more that I could be saying on that, but I think it's a dangerous, a very dangerous threat to the church, to the gospel, the way it can undermine it because it can give people a sense, you don't have to believe in God. You don't have to be saved. You don't need to repent. Oh, it's easy. When you die, I die, and people can give you testimonies of how glorious and glamorous it was. And that gives people a false consolation that, well, I don't have to go to church anymore. I don't have to read the Bible. I don't have to think about a holy God who sent His only begotten Son to be a Savior for a sinner like me. No one has to fear judgment because God is so good and so much love that you just go into an ocean of love after you die. It's a very dangerous idea. So we need to be aware of it. And I'm like I said, I'm not dismissing everything about it. I've read too much about it. And there's some empirical evidences that there is cases of people that do survive. But I, I, like I said, I could say more, but I'm going to hold off for the sake of time and because I don't want to go way over the top on this. So let me uh, just close in prayer. And our brother and sister will come up and lead us in music. And uh, then we have uh, all the forms that our brother said we're going to have passed out to members. And we got some pizza for, for you all in the back to enjoy some fellowship with each other. So let's just close in prayer. Oh, Father, we pray that you would prepare us for the days ahead. 
Give us, Lord, a spirit like the men of Issachar, Lord, to understand the times. Lord, how to act wisely, Lord, in the world, that we may not be overreactive, yet, Lord, not be underreactive. Give us a, uh, a, a stability, Lord, about understanding the times and what we ought to do and how we can do it. Give us, Lord, that great wisdom of yours, Lord, so that we can um, handle things in our lives in ways that are, number one, honoring to you and recognizing, Lord, that there's sacrifice involved in consecration to yourself as well. And have anyone, Lord, that doesn't know you as their Savior, we pray that they would cry out to you and ask for mercy and salvation, that they would look to the cross and behold the Lamb of God, Jesus, who bore the sin of many. Have mercy, we pray, Father, in Jesus' precious and worthy name, and for the food that we're about to eat as well. Amen. Please stand with us.